Malachi chapter 3, we're going to read verses 6 through 12. Beloved saints, the grass withers, the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, it remains forever, and it is worthy of our undivided attention. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions... You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us uh, ask his blessing on our time in it. Our great God of truth, we confess that... We are prone to believe lies and not the truth. We are easily swayed and led astray. The simple reality is that we give ear to voices that we ought not. We believe things that are simply untrue. And worse still, we often believe things about you that you have clearly denied. We believe that you are limited by our strength, that you are constrained by our sin, that our wickedness is greater than your mercy. Father, as we turn now to your word, root out all lies, destroy all imposters of the truth, and renew our minds in the knowledge of your truth. All of this we ask in the name of the God who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. tithing, right? (laughs) This should be fun. Uh, Who doesn't like to talk about tithing? Um, Passages like this, I think, tend to stir uh, emotions in some. They tend to polarize people. Uh, Verses like verse 10 uh, get abused by health and wealth preachers in the attempt to separate people from their money and to build their own empires of self. As God says, they've had their reward in this life and they will perish with their gold and their silver. But I think the danger is that pastors sometimes, if fearing to be thought of as uh, health, wealth, um, whatever we want to call them, that in reaction to such abuses, they can shy away from passages like this. They can uh, avoid them, they can soft pedal them, they can dance around them. Uh, We live in a society, don't we, that doesn't like to talk about money. It's kind of like Uncle Bruno. We don't talk about it. But here's the thing. Money is important. It's important in this way. It reveals a lot about us. Show me what a person spends his money on, and I will tell you what he values, what's important to him. 
And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that's uh, entertainment or food or travel. Uh, it might be homes or clothes. It could be cars. It could be toys, shoes. It could be beauty products. Whatever it is, we focus our resources on the things that matter to us. That I don't think is rocket science. And so the Bible talks openly about money. It talks about what it means. And and it talks about openly about giving and why we should. And, and, and we should be willing to do the same. So let me say this up front. If this is a topic that makes you uncomfortable hearing about, there's a problem in your heart. And, and I say that because if you are a Christian, you have declared... I am not my own. I have been bought at a price and all I am and all I have belongs to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, your longing is to be more like him and he was exceedingly generous. And so each and every one of us should desire, should long to be challenged when it comes to generosity. Because we want to be more like Jesus. And so if I, if I manage to honor the Lord, if I am able to get out of the way this morning, if I can just open up God's word to you, which is my heart's desire, if I do those things, you will be convicted and you will be encouraged. You will be challenged and you'll be driven to greater generosity with all of your resources. If I, was, if I was to summarize our passage this morning, it would be something like this. God commands us to give sacrificially so that we might learn to depend upon Him and not ourselves. And when we refuse, we rob Him of His opportunity to show us His faithfulness. That's what I think we're going to see as we open up this section of Malachi this morning. Uh, I want to start by spending some time rehearsing Israel's history and see how God, um, how being God's treasured possession was meant to define who Israel was and how they were supposed to trust God uh, and uh, to take care of them. Uh, then we'll be able to look at what Israel was doing instead, uh, that in their lack of confidence in God, it led them to rob him both of his offerings that they owed him, but also... Uh, rob him of the opportunity to show them his faithfulness by providing for them. And at the end, I'll try to bring some application to us and our confidence in God and how that is uh, reflected uh, or should be reflected in us being generous with our resources. So that's where we're headed uh, this morning. Verse 7 makes it clear that what Israel is doing in the days of Malachi is not new. Uh, It's been going on since the beginning. Uh, And so we need to go back to Israel's uh, early days. They're the beginning. Their national story begins in the book of Exodus. Uh, After spending a few centuries in slavery in Egypt, God sent Moses to deliver them uh, out of slavery and to lead them back to the promised land uh, from where they had come uh, in the days of Joseph. Uh, That 
deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus was the defining event in Israel's history. God would go back to that time and time again. He would often say things like this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to, and he goes on and explains what he expects from them. But he always starts with, you were slaves and I bought you out of slavery. That word redeemed means he purchased them, he bought them. And and that might sound terrible to us, we don't like the idea of people being bought. uh, But God makes no apology. In fact, God sees it as an honor for us to be bought by him. So he says this to Israel, You are my people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. To say Israel belongs to God uh, did not mean that they were uh, slaves, but that they were his treasured possession. They were his children. They were his heirs. They were his responsibility. They were his charge. And so in purchasing them, he obligated himself to provide for them, to care for them. And so in verse 10, in our passage, uh, when it says that they were to put God to the test, he's not saying that they can demand anything of him they want. In fact, that sort of putting God to the test is regularly forbidden in Scripture. No, this is an invitation to see if God will be a father to them, if he will provide for them, if he will do all that he has promised to do. And that's the underlying promise of God from Israel's birth. He will be their God. They will be his people. He will provide and care for them. And verse 6 tells us he doesn't change. If God makes that promise once, it is good. He doesn't change. He stands as ready as ever to keep his promise. And that promise... It was related to the tithe that Israel was required to give, but probably not in the way that we tend to think. God wasn't saying, so long as you give me your money, I'll take care of you, right? He is not muscle for hire, right? He's not offering to be their bodyguard if they pay him, not at all. Uh, Instead, the tithes were an integral part of life in Israel. Tithe, meaning 10%, was what they were required to give, Uh, Now, what's interesting is is that we often forget that there was more than one tithe. Uh, There was was the annual tithe in Numbers 18, which uh, was given to provide for those who worked and served in God's house, the priests and whatnot. There was another tithe described in Deuteronomy 14 uh, that was meant to provide for the feast in Jerusalem, the celebrations. And then there was a a triannual tithe every three years, described in Deuteronomy 14 as well, that was meant for the care of the poor. Now there's debate, were you to save up three years of tithing and bring it all, or were you just to tithe part of every third year? Either way, Israel was actually giving something more like 23 to 30%, um, just to be clear. But they weren't for God's benefit, as if he could ever be in need. The tithes were for Israel's benefit. Uh, 
then they did at least three things in the life of Israel. First, they were a reminder that all they had belonged to God. If they had been bought at a price and they were God's treasured possession, then all they had was His. And and that was part of what the tithe reminded them of. And that's why they were required to give what was called the first fruits, the first part of the harvest. Before the whole harvest is brought in, you bring the first part. Before you take care of yourself, you take care of your gifts. And that first part was a symbol of the entire harvest. And they were confessing that while they brought just a portion, that really all they had was the Lord's. The second thing that the tithes did, and, uh, and more importantly, was to remind them that if they belonged to God, they were His responsibility. And God taught Israel that in so many ways. Uh, Each day in the wilderness with the manna, he would not let them gather more than was required for one day so that they would learn to trust God for tomorrow, not their ability to hoard uh, manna. Similarly, by letting go of some of their resources, he was teaching them not to hoard up their earthly riches, but to place their trust and their hope in him and not their own wealth. It's the same principle. Israel's offerings required them to put their trust in God. It's an act of surrender. It's an act of faith. And it gave God the opportunity to be the one who provides for them, to be a father to them. And that leads to the third thing that the tithes did for Israel. They actually provided the means by which God took care of those who had no land of their own or uh, they served in God's house like the priest, as well as the sojourners or the widows, the orphans, the poor, the destitute. And so within Israel's offerings was a visible reminder that God cares for us. And that wasn't just meant for, uh, for those who uh, received the gifts, but as a reminder that all of them were dependent upon so many unseen provisions of God. Where does the rain come from? Who drives away the locusts and, and, the, and, and whatnot? You can't, you can't be solely responsible no matter how amazing you are for your crops. <laughs> you are dependent. And, and the same is true for all of us. In any vocation, there's so many things we depend upon God for every day that we don't see and realize. And those gifts to the poor were reminders we're all receiving God's provision. And so the tithe was an opportunity to love God, and it was an opportunity to love the neighbor. It sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds wonderful. Uh, this is, it's actually a gift to Israel, not a burden. And so the question is, what, what went wrong? Well, what went wrong is that the Israelites were robbing God. God calls um, to the Israelites in verse 7, and he says, to return to him. Now, we need to remember that they're already back in the land. The exile is behind them when they were in Assyria, in Babylon. They're back in the land. This isn't a geographical statement that if you would just come back to the land, God would listen to their prayers. That's not it. 
It's not their bodies that are far away, it's their hearts. But Israel acts shocked at God's words. Return to you? In what way? How shall we return to you? Verse 7. And God's response in verse 8 is to stop robbing him. And they say, uh, or God says that insofar as they have failed to give their offerings, they have been robbing him. And this isn't just one or two people. This is the whole nation. The whole nation has not taken God's call to give sacrificially seriously. Now, before we move on, I want to be really clear here that money is not the only thing that we can be stingy with. We can be stingy with anything God has blessed us with that we're meant to bless others with. We can be stingy with our time. We can be stingy with our homes. We can be stingy with any of the resources God has given us. But often we don't bless others with those blessings. And and the question is why? What keeps us from being sacrificial with the resources God has given us? I can can think of at least two things that keep us from being generous. And the first is priorities. Uh, As I said at the beginning, we spend our resources on the things we value. Uh, One person might spend his resources on travel and another making his home nice or buying a bigger home. One person might spend uh, his resources on a a fancy car and another on fancy shoes. Uh, One might spend uh, on food another on entertainment whatever you value is where you're going to put your resources and so I don't know how else to put this so I'm just going to say it your offerings reflect how much you value God and Israel simply didn't value him highly and their offerings showed it The other thing that keeps us from giving is fear and a quest for security. It's our natural tendency to think, if I don't take care of myself, who will? And when we think that way, we think every penny that goes out is one less to make sure there's food on my table and a roof over my head and maybe a new car in the garage. We don't give more because we struggle to trust God to take care of us. And here's the crazy thing. I looked up the national statistics this week just out of curiosity. The more people make, the lower percentage they give. People who make between zero and $20,000 a year tend to give between seven and 8%. The second you cross the 20,000 mark, it crashes to three. You get up around 40, 50, 100, and it goes down into the twos. Why? Why are the most generous people the poorest? Maybe it's because they already know they're dependent. And aren't deluded to think that they're providing for themselves. 
When we take care of ourselves first, we're telling God we've got it and we don't need Him. And so the act of giving first is an act of faith, it's an act of surrender. When we start with ourselves and then we give God what is left over, we're saying, I'll take care of myself and then I'll take care of you. But when we start with the Lord, when we surrender the first portion to the Lord, we're saying, you're going to have to take care of me. So much of our lives are spent trying to make sure we don't need to be vulnerable, that we don't need to trust God. We are constantly trying to find ways to ensure our own comfort and safety. And then when things get tough, we wonder where God is. And it's true in human relationships, and it's true with God, that that when you protect yourself, when you avoid being vulnerable, it only puts distance between you. I've seen this with people who are chronically lonely. I, I see this with husbands and wives. I see it with parents and children. And I see it with people in God. When you are set on not depending on God, you, not God, put distance between the two of you. When you say, God, I don't want to depend on you, I don't want to be vulnerable, I don't want to be dependent, you stay over there and I'll take care of myself. How do we have the gall to wonder where the distance comes from? And so God says, return to me and I will return to you. A few months back, uh, how did Isaac put it this morning? Uh, Suffering in men's study at 5 a.m. Pastor Isaac made this comment. We were talking about prayer in the upper room as Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray. And in one of those moments of sheer genius, Pastor Isaac said, Why do most of our prayers pray for things so that we don't have to depend upon God. Why do we pray for things that basically say, Lord, give me this so I don't have to, I don't have to trust you tomorrow. We pray for things that will make our lives less scary. We pray for things that will make us comfortable. We pray for things that will make it so that we don't need to pray anymore. What do you pray for? Is it things that will keep you from having to depend upon God in the future? Or do you pray that your confidence will be in Him and not in the things that you possess? Are you willing to pray, Lord, if I'm depending too much on my earthly riches, take them away? Israel wasn't just robbing God of the tithes but of his opportunity to show them faithfulness. So what about us? How does all of this relate to us? Well, it all starts with the foundational truth that you are not your own. Paul told the church in Corinth, Do you not know that you are not your own, that you were bought with a price? So glorify God in your body. Beloved, you are God's treasured possession. He purchased you at a great cost. What was the price that he paid for you? Well, John 3 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, God didn't buy you out of slavery to Egypt. He bought you out of slavery to sin. 
He did not buy you with money. He bought you at the cost of his own son. He paid the ultimate price for your redemption. And But that, that price was not paid against the will of the Son. I, I was thinking about that the verse in the Bible where it says Jesus gave himself for us. So I, I went to look it up this week and was pleasantly surprised that there's actually six verses that say that. Six. Different ways, different contexts. But in each of those contexts, you find one of two things. Some of them remind you of the price that Jesus was willing to pay to free us from sin and death. In fact, the fact is that Jesus was willing to die for us on the cross. And that fact shows us just how much he loves us. It tells you what he values. He values us more than any earthly possession and even more than his own life. It tells us that he was willing to be sacrificial for what really matters. We are his treasured possession. He loves us. That's the gospel message. The other passages that mention him giving himself move into calls for us to do the same in our lives. How you live is a consequence of the gospel you believe. Husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives because Jesus laid down his life for us. We're called to live for Jesus, not for ourselves. We're called to be zealous for good works, all because... Jesus gave himself for us. He didn't give us 10%. (laughs) He gave us everything. And so, of course, that leads us to the question, Pastor, are you saying that we have to give 100% of what we make and just trust that our mortgage is going to get paid? (laughs) Um, Well, in a sense, the question, how much do I have to give, is the wrong question. has the wrong priorities. You see, we can only learn to give sacrificially when we realize that we are not just God's treasured possession, but that he is ours. There are people who have used verses like uh, verses 10 through 12 to say, give God $100 and he'll reward you with $1,000. Okay. That's not what that passage, these verses are about at all. Uh, The Bible is not a call to let go of material comfort in order to increase material comfort. (laughs) Rather, it's a statement about trusting God to take care of you, not trusting yourself. It's about finding uh, your comfort and your contentment in God. And it's about giving up your ideas of security and embracing God's. Perhaps you've noticed that at Reformation we don't use the language of tithes. And there's a reason for that. Uh, When you have an older child and a younger child, you might say something to your older child like, I want you to spend some time with your little brother. Every parent knows what the next question is. How much time? And so you say, 30 minutes. And you know that at exactly 30 minutes, the child is going to come out and say, I did it. 
and move on. But what happens if that child grows up one day and his wife says to him, I think the kids could really use some of your time. And the husband says to his wife, how much? Well, that's not a good response. That's understandable for a seven-year-old, but not for a grown man. That would be something entirely different. We give our children exact amounts to train them to be generous with their resources with the hope that when they're adults they don't need an exact time they just learn to be generous something similar was going on in the bible with the tithe the bible says that israel in the old testament was like the church as a child and so israel was given specific amounts so that she might learn to be generous with her resources. But those specifics were never meant to be an end. They were just the starting point, the training tool. As you get older, you shouldn't need someone to set the amount. So in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, the Lord tells us each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God says, I'm not going to give you an amount. Because more than anything, your giving is about growing in faith. It's about learning to trust God more. And so one of the the clear signs of Christian maturity is sacrificial giving. Giving doesn't make you mature. Maturity makes you give. It shows that you prioritize others over yourself. It shows that you're not looking to your wealth for your comfort and your security. So I'm not going to give you an amount. (laughs) Yes, the Lord has provided for you to care for your, your mortgage, your rent, your food, and all those things, of course. But a portion of that, he says, you give first to me. But he doesn't give you an exact amount. So what if you're simply unable to give? Well, there's two things I might say. First, there are times and there are situations when people legitimately are not able to share in the giving. And at those moments, they are called to be blessed through the giving of others. The Bible talks about this regularly. And you may very well be at a time in your life when you get to see the provision of God in real and tangible ways through the giving of others. We're going to take our diaconal offering in just a few minutes. That's what it's geared towards. This is part of God's design. It's it's a beautiful blessing to be a part of his church and to see his provision in these very real and tangible ways. That might be where you're at. And that's okay. But it's also possible that the reason you're unable to give is simply because you've already prioritized the wrong things. You took on expenses that you shouldn't have, and then you looked at God and said, there's nothing left. You didn't start with him, and now there's no room for him. So what do you do? This is the other reason you should not be too rigid on amounts. 
Because if you have this idea in your mind that this is exactly how much the Lord expects each year or each week or whatever, if you think there's a magic number and you're not able to hit it, you'll tend to give nothing until you can. But if you're currently giving nothing, then anything is better. One dollar this month is better than the zero last month. Five cents. One might, whatever that is. But here's the thing. As your priorities change, so will your giving. Because you're going to start to delight in sacrificing so that you can give. I don't need this coffee. I want to bless somebody else. That's like $15 right there. Because God, not your possessions, will become your chief delight. And then people are going to see that contentment in you. That it flows from God and not what you possess. And they'll call you blessed. That's what verse 12 is about. As we conclude, I want to make sure to keep the emphasis where it belongs. God commands us to give sacrificially so that we would learn to depend upon him and not ourselves. We are the ones who benefit most from giving. Because when we refuse, we rob him of the opportunity to show us his faithfulness. That's what it means to be Jesus' treasured possession. It's about being shaped to be more like him. And so it's fitting that we would end right here at the Lord's table. Because here we have a visual reminder that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 14. But at this table, we don't just see how he has loved us, but how he calls us to love him and to love others. Because we have been born of sacrifice, we're, we're called to sacrifice. And, then, and so we give as he gave. We give with great joy, born out of love. We give, really, at the end of the day, Because God, not our wealth, is our treasured possession. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward, Pastor Isaac, so that we might receive this gift from our God uh, this morning. Our most merciful Savior, you who came voluntarily and not under compulsion, you who came to serve and not to be served, you who chose the form of a servant, we come and we praise you. Because we've been selfish. We have robbed you. We have valued your gifts over you. And yet you have redeemed us at a great cost to yourself. Nothing less than the life of your own son. Who gave himself for us willingly. And so we are not our own. We and all we have belong to you. Teach us to hold our earthly riches loosely. Teach us to give generously, sacrificially. Teach us to love as you have loved us. 
to delight in blessing others. Shape us to be more like you. Teach us what it means to live knowing that you are our treasured possession. Amen.